Okay, everybody, we have a huge show for you today. First up, Bolt CEO Ryan Breslau is back in the news again. Today, he's talking about stock options, uh, which will break down the arguments on both sides. Then we're going to briefly cover, there are so many, by the way, and so many Twitter dunks. Then we will briefly cover NVIDIA's ARM acquisition falling through and whether that is another big soft bank bet that might need a repricing. And uh, finally, Molly's going to interview Craig Zingerlein from Growth University. This is one of the companies in our accelerator currently. We're going to be sharing with you a couple of those companies so you can get to know them early. It's going to be a great episode. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by OpenPhone. As a startup founder, a lot of mistakes are easy to roll back, but using your personal cell phone as your company number isn't one of them. OpenPhone makes it easy to get business phone numbers for you and your team, right on top of your existing devices. Visit openphone.co slash twist to get 20% off your first six months. Real Good Foods is modernizing frozen foods and has become one of the fastest growing food brands in the U.S. Everything Real Good Foods makes is low in carbs, high in protein, and made from real food ingredients. Go to realgoodfoods.com and use code TWIST for $15 off. And... Our crowd helps you invest in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist. All right, we're back. Uh, we are so grateful to Ryan Breslow for his continuing contribution to the content of our show. Of course, we are referring to Bolt CEO Ryan Breslow, who rocketed himself into the news recently by taking on the Stripe and PayPal mafia, outing, breaking that story to the whole entire world. Then uh, maybe like stepping down as CEO. And I Mm. think maybe he's got like a new company that he's trying to build and then Mm. blew up the internet, at least Mm. BC internet uh, Mm. yesterday by tweeting about how he wants to innovate on Bolt's stock option program which he believes is designed to be more employee friendly and i feel like this is a good chance to get some of jason's knowledge in here on how this stuff sure normally works before we get to sort of like what he's trying to do in his weird can i just say very telemarkety sounding tweet thread yeah he's kind of um selling this stuff hard right now but we do appreciate the content we've talked about the issue of stock options I mean, he's kind of like the fourth producer here. Thank you for. I mean, he really is. He really he gives like, us like a story a week. It's great. I didn't have like an obvious headline today until boom. Yeah, thanks, Gray. <laughs> so there's a there's a there's a lot to unpack here. So for people who are new to stock options, uh, when you go work for a startup, you get paid very well typically, um, unless it's in the bootstrapping phase when there's no money. But and those people get a lot of stock. They bootstrap. They may maybe take no salary for six to twelve months while they try to raise money. Uh, or they might take a small draw if it's, you know, the company's been funded, you know, with 100K or something by friends and family or the founders. Uh, so when you start hiring employees, you make something called an ESOP, ESOP, Employee Stock Option Plan. When you create an ESOP, there are standards for an ESOP. So when a board starts having board meetings at your startup, a VC joins the board, a seed fund joins the board, yeah, you uh, want to retain talent. They're coming for the adventure of a startup to have great responsibilities and be a leader in a company that's starting with just 10 people. And uh, there's some lottery tickets given out. Those lottery tickets are called stock (laughs) options. If you were lucky enough to work at Google, Apple, 
Facebook, Twitter, etc. Those those lottery tickets paid off. Uh, my friend Chamath Palihapitiya was a venture capitalist, had worked at AOL, and the way he became Chamath was he got the lottery ticket of Facebook stock options. Right. So, how does it work? You're granted a certain number of shares from this ESOP, and ESOP is typically ten percent of the shares of a company taken out of the founder shares. So the two founders own 80%, they sell 20% to angels, then a venture round comes along, they dilute another 20%, maybe they get down to 70 or so percent, and then they give 10% of their shares to the employees, typically. Um, or sometimes those shares can be added, and everybody takes the 10% dilution at the same time. Generally speaking, Molly, the VCs who are buying 10% of the company do not want to add the stock option well, the next day and go down to 9%. Seems kind of unfair, right? right? So usually it comes out of the founder shares. And uh, it can be refreshed over time. The company gets bigger. They might add, you know, 5% more shares, 2% more shares. An employee vests those shares over four years. If they leave the company, mm -hmm. uh, they have to do something called exercise, which means they have to buy the shares. Because when you're getting these shares, they're not just gifted to you. In big companies like Facebook or Google, they might give you RSUs, restricted stock units. They actually just gift you the shares you pay tax on them. And they're literally just giving you the shares. They show up in your E-Trade account or Robinhood account or Morgan Stanley account. Yeah. And you pay tax on them. You get a $100 share, you pay some tax on it. And uh, I think those get treated as income. Now, if you have stock options, the option to buy them, there's a strike price of a penny a share. At the seed round, it's a dollar. At the, C the Series A, it's three. And let's say at the Series B, it's five. Or let's say it's even 10. You had a strike price of a, you know, uh, a penny for it. That means you mm -hmm. were given that with the option to buy the share for a penny. If you sell it at the $5 price, you have a gain of $4.99, yada, yada. If you, uh, what he's talking about here in his tweet storm, then that, that's all fine. Right. When people so that's leave the, the way company, it works. That's the way it currently generally, works, generally. Currently. And it's been some, through some iterations, which we'll get to. There are some the iterations. The number one iteration is um, the exercise window. Typically, when you leave a company, whether you leave or you're fired, involuntary or voluntary, that doesn't affect your shares. They don't get to take them away because they fired you. Um, so you, maybe let's say you did all four years and on day one of year five, you left. Now you got four years worth of stock options. Let's say uh, they're now worth a million dollars. You hit the jackpot. It's a lottery ticket. Um, you have to exercise them, which means you have to pay whatever that strike price was. Now, if it was a dollar, you, you know, you, you may have to come up with and you had a million of these or 10 million of these shares, whatever it happens to be, or um, you would have to pay that money to the company to buy your shares. Mm -hmm. But these are illiquid shares. So you're basically paying, let's say it was $10,000 to buy, actually exercise your shares. You pay them, but you can't sell them. In other words, you come out of pocket for them. And so mm -hmm. sometimes people come out of pocket with them. Other times people just let them expire. Uh, because you have 30 to 90 days, depending on how they set them up. Typically, I think 90 is 60 to 90 is the standard. So you have a little bit of time to get the money together, you have to sell other equities or whatever. And you have to make that determination. A lot of companies are now making the exercise window three, five or 10 years. In other words, if you came to the company, you got a full 10 years at any point to exercise them. If the company goes public, you um, would just get issued your shares. Uh, if the company were to sell, they would give you the difference between the two. But mm -hmm. what he's saying here is he points out that some executives do something funky, big executives who are joining the company later, they if they're sophisticated, they're already millionaires, they may want to get capital long term capital gains, long term capital gains is when you sell shares uh, that are older than a year old, and you may want to 
start uh, your tax treatment when you buy those shares. So they'll do something called an early exercise. Uh, so let's say it did cost $10,000 sometimes, or it maybe cost 100000 The company will give that CEO the $100,000 in a loan to buy it, mm-hmm. but they don't actually give them the $100,000. It's just done with paperwork. And they will give a loan to buy those shares now. That loan is collateralized by that individual, the CEO's you know, home, whatever. Mm-hmm. If the company goes out of business, it's probably no recourse. In other words, they're not going to go try and get it from you. Um, and that usually doesn't happen. But then you on a personal basis and the company has on their books this loan. It's hard to manage. It's a bunch of paperwork. Typically costs a thousand, two thousand bucks to do the paperwork for this. And you do it for senior, senior executives who want to be able to early exercise their shares uh, right. to get better tax treatment down the road. He's and saying partly oh, we yeah. should say. You know, it's 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 yes, so that they can get better tax treatment down the the road. We should also clarify that when you're talking about those early executives, it's usually a very large amount of stock, right? It's a big chunk sure. of options compared to what you might be giving your everyday employees. It could be ten million dollars in shares for a company like Bolts if they were going to hire a CEO. Um, mm-hmm. CEO might get one to five percent of the company in shares uh so let's say it was a 500 million dollar company they give them a 25 million dollar options package uh to stick around for four or five years you know for a world-class ceo that's not crazy um because they could start their own company or join an earlier stage company and get 10 percent, or mm-hmm. start the company themselves and get 70 percent. so boards are dealing with competing offers or if it's somebody that senior they could get a senior vice president job at a Google or Facebook for a couple million dollars in options a year, right? So you have to compete for those elite employees who have been to the dance before and done this. So yeah, they yeah. that's why they do it. And so he kind of took that and was like, hey, everybody should have everything. Problem is, if you can't afford the 10000 or $5,000 to exercise your options, should you really be taking out loans? And then these loans really do affect um, the balance sheets of people personally. I think you'd have to disclose this if you were going to go buy your first home or something and i'm not sure you would get canceled for that but you would also the company has to uh, my understanding is the company has to keep track of all these and it's a liability for the company listen lots of founders are loosey-goosey with their personal phone numbers we know that they put it in company documents they use it for sales calls they use it for everything including all their personal usage and that makes things messy because you won't know who's calling you a sales prospect or somebody from your kid's school or a spam call will open phone helps you create business phone numbers for you and your team and it works through an app on your smartphone or desktop so it's super easy there's no need to carry two phones like back in the day just pick a number install the app and you're done and here's a bunch of features we love you know how you can create a shared email for customer support well now you can have a shared phone number with multiple employees fielding calls and texts like if you had a vip support line or you wanted a salesperson to actually pick up you can do that whole round robin thing so Here's your call to action. Open phone is already super affordable at as low as $10 per month per user. But Twist listeners can get an extra 20% off any plan for your first six months by signing up at openphone.co slash twist. Remember, that's .co. Openphone.co slash twist. And you can have your existing numbers ported over from another service. No problem. They'll do that for free. Just head to O-P-E-N. P-H-O-N-E dot co slash twist today. Let's back up to what he's proposing because we um, have jumped ahead to analyzing the proposal. So his Uh, problem statement basically is 
that there is this issue where an employee leaves and they might not have the money to come up with the cash to exercise the option, one, and that two, um, it's not fair that executives at companies get this treatment, this loan upfront and this ability to, you know, reap the, the tax benefits of their options right from the jump. So he is proposing that at bolts, they're going to fix this by allowing every employee, if I understand this correctly, to get this early exercise option, which is in fact, a loan, a loan. from the company. That allows employees to exercise their options earlier if, though, and this is the drawback, and he says this many times throughout his tweet thread, yeah. if the options end up underwater hmm. when the employee go, wants to leave, they're still personally on the hook for the loan. Yep. Right. I guess the company could theoretically forgive the loan. Um, I think that's what would happen in that situation. And there are some things in law that, you know, like are liabilities or there could be edge cases but they don't normally happen so in the course of you know these things happening a board would typically if somebody left they were underwater they might just forgive the loan or something like that but it's he does point out it's a liability i'm not saying it's bad that he is offering this to folks like mm -hmm. i wouldn't say it's bad there might be somebody who has enough money that they feel comfortable taking this maybe it's their second or third time at the rodeo but mm -hmm. this is largely solved by giving a longer, ex you know, window to exercise, right? So people don't lose it. And if you're affluent, you could always just buy the shares, right? Uh, as somebody else pointed out, you could just give RSUs to people and pay their taxes, which is what the Googles right. and Facebooks of the world do. So also, anyway, he's... I have kind of a dumb question. Yeah, sure. Maybe it's not that dumb. There are no dumb like, questions when it comes to tax law and stock options. It's well, wildly I mean, I, complex. Stock yeah. options are something that you are given at a company either to uh incentivize them to stay there because you are paying them less than market rate you know and you're that like, used to be why not that anymore. used to be why but now it's sort of like you know it's an added bonus or whatever and it Lottery engenders chicken, your yeah. loyalty and potentially yeah. becomes a golden handcuffs thing but like if you leave hmm. isn't that just on you yeah like I mean, you left like yeah. why i don't understand why these companies are by are bending over backwards to make sure that company that employees who leave yes have the option to buy their shares for like 10 years yeah so the reason is you would want to uh imagine yourself in the situation where you hired somebody they did a great job for four years but they moved to another state they retired they started a family mm -hmm. do you want to penalize them for four great years of service they gave you or do you want them to keep their lottery ticket that they can cash in later if the ponies happen to you know right. <laughs> right. you know win place or show so it's a it's a loyalty to the employee to let them, you know, get the win and then build goodwill people who didn't do this or were sharky about these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Then the employees leave, they tell other people, hey, yeah, that founder, the board, you know, they're horrible people, you know, I don't have my options. You, what options in these lottery tickets really do is they perpetuate uh, the dream of Silicon Valley. 80 90% of startups fail one in 10 one in five, maybe these options become worth something. That's kind of part of the the dream of what we do in tech and in startups. Mm -hmm. it's, it's our value proposition. You want to go to Netflix, you know, today in 2022, you get safety security RSUs. You want to go to Netflix in 1989 or 2002, you get massive unknowns, hard work, more opportunity and these lottery tickets. So 
Yeah. I think you want to be loyal to folks and, and give them that opportunity to still win the lottery. When people hear those stories about the receptionist or the chef or the artist at Google or Facebook making $10 million or $50 million, one group of people, small-minded people think, oh, that wasn't worth it. And then the savvy folks say, yeah, but that got everybody to buy into what we're doing here. And mm-hmm. the company became worth a trillion dollars. Who cares if somebody who didn't deserve it, who or ostensibly didn't deserve it who deserves anything right like does the chef deserve it for coming in and working 12 hours a day does the receptionist or does the sales person who is uh not a great contributor but still stuck it out for three years and became worth 10 million are they worth it i don't know right he so ryan acknowledges that it it is interesting because one of the things he points out is that some companies have stopped like they tried to mitigate this issue by extending that the window. Uh, yeah. window and then some have stopped which he then <laughs> hashtags the mob <laughs> the mob uh, so well, there, there was been... somebody from y combinator who was pushing this as a, a theory uh like we should do extend the windows i think actually sam altman was very public about saying extend oh, well, the he's windows. saying the mob actually pushed to then shorten the windows again yeah and so, so Scott maybe they Cooper actually yeah from a16z blogged that he in 2016, he blogged that, quote, a 10 year exercise window is really a direct wealth transfer from the employees who choose to remain at the company and build future shareholder value to mm. former employees who are no longer yeah. contributing to building the business and its ultimate value. Yeah, that's a, that's somebody who pulls the ladder up behind them. It's nonsense. Yeah. Um, if you put the yeah. time in, you earn the shares. It's not a trade on everybody else. Like, you you earned there them. and you signed yeah. the, de- the terms of the deal or you got the shares. You should get yeah. to buy them. OK, I so, think so yeah. well, then. Ryan is trying to then avoid that, but let's go back to this personal risk question because again, it doesn't like he's not, he, he really does think he's doing this really forward thinking thing for employees, yeah. his employees, it seems, um, in his telemarketing thread. It's yeah, just again, so, I don't, I don't doubt his intent at all. I do not. No, no. Um, but when a thread is that sort of like promotional about how great it all is, it's, it starts to feel like, is it so great though? I'm not really sure. And what our producers have wisely pointed out is that it feels like there's a specific risk for Bolt employees here that they could end up underwater. Yeah, again, I don't think the company is going to be chasing those loans if they do them. So it's probably Mm. uh, a theoretical and maybe there could be like if you go to get other loans depending on the size of this could come up as a liability again if you let's say you were going to get a down payment on a house or you're trying to get a second mortgage or a home equity line i'm not sure um because again usually people who are not yet wealthy don't do these kind of funky loans or margin loans or these kind of loans Mm -hmm. this is kind of like when you've got enough cheddar that you could actually pay the loan if the worst case scenario happened it wouldn't be fun but it would be you know it wouldn't be the risk of ruin so i think that's the issue here is like do you want to have a loan hanging out there um that could be called right um the loan could be called theoretically so you know it's rich people have and affluent people who have their stack already think differently like this quote from scott above to go back to that for a second of like oh Mm -hmm. the people who work four years versus people work 10 years well you could say the same thing about people who own microsoft shares who don't work at the company. Right. Are they a drag? Right. If I own Apple shares, am I a drag? Am I a drag on Uber or Robinhood because I own shares publicly? No, I'm a supporter. I'm a I think he's, just, he's not talking about people who own shares down the road. He's talking about the exercise window. Like, should you allow people who no longer work there the option to exercise and buy that 10 years later? I'm not arguing that it sounds yeah. a little stingy <laughs> the way that he phrased it. 
I'm just clarifying that he means the window specifically. Here's the stupid thing about Scott's comment. The people who are working there past four years, five through 10, they get more options for continuing to stay there. And the people who leave that startup and go to another one get options in the next startup. Everybody gets some options, you know, generally speaking, unless it's a company like MailChimp that said, uh, or I think 37 Signals, we just said, we're just going to pay you higher than market rate. We're going to give bonuses instead and so you get the cash now and for people who would like an extra 20k a year that's a better option for you so again ryan thanks for bringing up a topic that we've all rehashed endless times (laughs) and uh becoming a virtue signal he's becoming annoying um because it's like it's like somebody who just discovered startups being like hey guys do you know there's an option window and there's an issue around this it's like yeah i've been in this board meeting 50 times when we talked about it like yes we we all know about this issue we've all hashed it out dude and he's like i have a new idea it's like no you don't (laughs) he's just he's he's like the annoying the next generation has to learn the lessons all over again he's the annoying kid in the back of like a screenwriting like uh class and he's like have you guys seen pulp fiction and we're like yes (laughs) did you guys ever see savage samurai yes we know Uh kurosawa is yes We all know how hard it is to eat healthy when you're working crazy hours like I do, startup founders do, anybody in our industry. But thankfully, Real Good Foods is here to help. They make nutritious foods more accessible to improve all of our health. And they're one of the fastest growing frozen food brands in the U.S. In fact, they just went public back in November under the ticker RGF. So congrats to the team on the IPO and making great products. They got a ton of food you love. Mexican, Italian entries, pizza, breakfast sandwiches. I tried the breakfast sandwiches and the pizza. Amazing. All 100% grain-free, low in carbs, and high in protein, which is what I'm looking to do in my diet. And it's made from real food ingredients. Real good foods is perfect if you're trying to cut back on carbs, get more protein from real food, or if you just need a convenient and tasty option without sacrificing your health. Or maybe you're just trying to eat healthier in general. This is the perfect solution for you. I like to keep it on hand just in case I I need a late night snack or I forget to order lunch. And they're now available in the freezer sections of Costco, Walmart, Target, and most grocery stores nationwide. And a big goal of theirs is to support local food banks across the U.S. by donating 1 million nutritious meals. Nicely done. So go to realgoodfoods.com, use the offer code TWIST, and you'll get $15 off. You can order directly from their site. Learn more at realgoodfoods.com and follow Real Good Foods on social. Jeff Richards, a partner at uh, GGV and a guest on Angel Season 4, Episode 9, replied yeah. to Ryan with the following, for what it's worth, almost every private company in Silicon Valley did this in the 90s, which I do mm-hmm. remember. He says it was an absolute disaster. Employees spent years paying back loans for worthless stock, tax bills for merely exercising, etc. I'm not in the mob, but unfortunately lived through it firsthand as a founder. Yeah, there are tax issues too, yeah, when you exercise these. I mean, I remember people getting hit with that, with the AMT, the alternative minimum tax back in the 90s on options that appeared to be worth more than they were worth. And it it was like, it really came close to ruining some people. And then Ryan, because this is what the next generation always does, responded and said, over half of our employees chose this. Plus, I would strongly encourage my family and friends to choose this. But VC says it didn't work in the 90s, so it's a disaster. VC Twitter pumps the tweet. This is why VC-run companies are never able to make strides for employees. Again, you know, he's just he rob- he's the Robin Hood of CEOs. If, you know what, Ryan, if you're so, like, precious and amazing, like, take the 25% of the company you own and distribute it amongst your employees and, and keep 5%. If not, mm-hmm. STF. 
you. I mean, mm-hmm. really, with the virtue signaling every day, it's like I, I was like I invited him to come on the pod. I was like, this would be an interesting discussion with the mob stuff. Now it's like, please, somebody else have him as a guest because I'm finding Ryan increasingly like virtue signaling and annoying. Yeah, and it's just the way he presents it. Like you could present this as a question, right? You could say, right. "Is this a good idea?" Right. Yeah. Or here's what we're doing. I'm looking for some feedback. Now he's kind of gone full bore that everybody's an idiot except for him. Yes. And I think that's probably like he's overplaying his hand. Um, and I mean, uh, look, it's yeah. the kind of thing you can do when you're retired, right? From your Fortune 100 company that you built from the ground up. And you, but yeah, I mean, eventually right. Ryan is going to have to raise again, one assumes. And yeah. Bolt has already raised at many multiples, if I understand that correctly, as a high multiple 61X and 183X price to sales and might be looking at a down round. He's um, ahead of his skis right now, for sure. He's yeah. ahead of his skis. That's a good but way to put it. But a lot of companies and, are who raised in the last two years, so it's not unique to him, in fairness. Yeah. I mean, it is very true that BC Twitter was not having it, including you, yourself, well, and you. Well, it's more like, gosh, you know, when you, literally, you, you have this conversation 50 times with 10 different sets of lawyers from all the top people, and you literally come down to the same you know, dead ends, which is the IRS and tax mm-hmm. law. Mm-hmm. If you get something of value, you have to pay your taxes. And this whole dream of not having to pay your taxes or pay less taxes, like when you're focused on this kind of stuff, like the yeah. tax optimization t- stuff, it kind of tells me you're not focused on the core business. That's the yep. red flag for me all the time. Like if there's really only one thing you can do to pay less taxes and, you know, there's really like a small subset of things. Move to a low tax state you know create trusts i guess also i mean honestly like i'm not trying to be or pay your taxes over here but pay your freaking taxes or pay your taxes yeah i mean like every time i pay taxes it's like i'm like oh my god i you know like when i paid my first seven figure tax bill you know you're like i can't believe i'm paying this and then you're like oh but i get the rest all right you know it's not the end of the world right like you could just kind of i mean i i like the person who was like issue them rsus and pay their taxes yeah, that. that's that a, would actually be, be that's better than sticking your employees with a loan it's funny because yesterday on the show i talked about buy now pay later yeah and i was reading this and i was like this is the buy now pay later of employee stock option plans and it seems like you're going to end up in all the same trouble that you're going to end up with like if you can't afford it yeah you shouldn't have it <laughs> you know it's it's like people taking margin loans against their crypto or trading on margin on yes. robin hood like Listen, I, I'm fine with people getting educated about these things and doing it in a small way. Like if they had a margin loan for 25% of their Bitcoin's value, you know, whatever the high watermark of the last two or three downturns were. Okay. Mm-hmm. But this other way where you're, you know, leveraging up two, three, four, five X on some funky exchange on a, 50, you know, island somewhere in, yeah. you know, a sunny location with very few laws. Like, yeah, no be careful folks well and when they wash out and they lose everything it only helps hedge funds right so like at the yes. end of the day this loan scheme if people can't afford to pay it back is not it's not going to help them like yeah i'm going to say another thing like if you like to gamble like you don't need to take a margin loan on your 25 dime bet on the jets it's like i have a twenty-five thousand dollar bet on the jets this sunday like you've already got a huge problem in your life that you bet on the jets. Now you're like, I'm going to margin loan my jets. Bet. You know, like that's what like the real are doing. problem here is the team you're betting on. 
not <laughs> I'm just talking about the teams that have perennially have the worst luck. You know, like if I don't bet <sighs> on the Knicks, like being a Knicks fan is enough suffering that you don't need to add gambling on top of it. If I went to gamble, I gamble on the Warriors where like at least, you know, they pull miracles, you know, on a regular basis. Not the Knicks who are just dream killers and the Jets. I mean, when I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, there were bookies. And if uh, Artie wanted to take your bet, you just tell him. And I would watch guys. Give me two dimes on the Jets. Give me, you know, give me five on whatever the Giants. And you were on essentially margin. Um, If you didn't pay, there was a VIG, 5% a week. So if you put a $5,000 bet, you and you didn't pay, you just paid 500 bucks a week in interest. Wow. 10% 10% maybe the VIG, right? And you still have to pay back the principal. So, mm-hmm. you know, this it got a little hairy for folks. If you're now, as we know, sports betting and wagering is becoming legal in the United States, yada, yada. I'm totally pro that. People should be able to do what they want with their money. Vegas or bet on sports is fine. It's entertaining. If you got a problem, make a phone call, get help, uh, yada, yada. But you, when you use these <laughs> fantasy sports sites or you're betting, you have to have a deposit for a reason. Yep. Because gamblers do get ahead of their skis and they do something called chase it. You don't want to be chasing it. <sighs> I think uh, chase it seems like a good segue actually to our NVIDIA. And this is why so- I don't gamble, Molly. Except on <laughs> right, startups. Uh-huh. I, I have know, a- like your gambling rules, if I'm being honest, are a little bit all over the place here. <laughs> Somewhat well, no, I found a way to gamble <laughs> that is uh, net positive for the planet and for humanity. Bet on entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. kind of a rigged game if you have good access you're only need to hit one every 100 or 200 investments the odds are basically stacked in your favor that's why i was like you know if you were in my book angel i was like you know it's kind of like i'm playing in a uh, a card game where i get all the aces and kings and you don't like that's deal mm-hmm. flow right when you have great deal flow right. whether you're at yc or the mob or Andreessen or sequoia kind of like somebody's like here's all the aces and kings from the deck go ahead place your bets because <laughs> people come to you first yeah uh, all right segue um chasing things nvidia has been chasing uh, a big chip merger for a long time in this case with arm and it seems to have backfired and this mm-hmm. this deal fell apart a few days ago um mm-hmm. but what is interesting about it i think to us is that it's yet another soft bank story so SoftBank acquired Arm in 2016, yep. pivoted the business by making this big bet on Internet of Things devices. So they mm-hmm. just made like smaller and smaller chips to go into connected devices at in homes, mm-hmm. uh, started to ignore the <laughs> money printing markets. And it seems to have backfired. Now, this deal with NVIDIA and Arm fell apart over antitrust concerns mm. um, and Arm is sort of out in the cold and SoftBank yeah. is trying to figure out what to do with them. So this is a little bit of a yes, no IPO story, I think, as we l- dig a little deeper. But what's interesting about it is that it was intended always to develop architecture for chips and processors right. and semiconductors. They don't manufacture chips themselves. Mm. They just designed the architecture. IPO'd in 1998. Uh, Apple used to own about 15% of the company. And then in 2016, Software SoftBank acquired Arm for thirty-two billion dollars because you know Masa yeah. was super into the IoT thing. Yeah. He was like, "This is definitely going to work." And then I think he took them private. Hmm. 
now like who knows what happens who knows what happened i guess the question becomes sort of like is this a whiff for softbank was it just a miss and now they're going to have to eat this 32 billion dollar acquisition acquisition on some level i mean leaving aside what this means for nvidia it's just a super interesting to me softbank and arm story yeah and i guess nvidia was going to buy them yep NVIDIA was going to acquire them yeah. uh, and they wanted to, they wanted to buy them for $40 billion in cash and stock. Yeah. Meaning, by the way, that ARM's valuation would have gone up only $8 billion since SoftBank acquired it in 2016. Mm. NVIDIA has been crushing it lately, $650 billion company. Its stock price is up about 70% over the last five, five years. And they wanted to become a chip powerhouse yeah. with this, but they spent 18 months trying to get this deal done. And it was just a huge antitrust, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is um, one of the high stakes problems that we're going to see more of. If you don't have the save of acquisitions and mergers available to companies when they stumble, Mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, they could go into kind of a death spiral or not that I'm saying they're going to go into a death spiral, but you're taking a major option off the table for an exit. So now they have to go public, but who's going to want to buy the stock in a company that's in decline or sideways? So what do you do? You then would have to manage it for profits and maybe cut staff and cut investment and then try to make profits off of it to try to make your money back. It's you see how this becomes a quick debt spiral because you need investment capital in order to, um, you know, compete. And it's it's an arms race out there. No pun intended. No pun intended. uh, With these chip manufacturers and you see Apple making their own. And yeah. Uh, you know, this is not going to be pretty, uh, but you know, SoftBank can afford a couple of flops and these things are always a matter of price. So if the price gets low enough, somebody could snap it up or if the price is low enough, there could be some sort of a buyout that occurs. And so we saw yeah. that actually with WeWork, right? Sometimes you just got to take the medicine and reprice an asset. We start with Peloton, reprice the asset. Now all of a sudden Peloton starts rising again because they repriced it. They reset everybody's expectation. Investors get wiped out. Uh, so, uh, you know, we'll see with this one. But th- I think the higher order, more interesting thing for me here is, you know, SoftBank swings for the fences. Sometimes they yeah. win a couple of billions. Sometimes they lose a couple of billions. Sometimes they make tens of billions. They'll be fine uh, because they're playing the game slightly differently. They're doing this late, late, mm-hmm. late, late stage, you know, try to make a couple of billion dollars. But on a percentage basis, it might not be, you know, as juicy as being a Series A investor or something. Um, but yeah, if we're going to block mergers and acquisitions, if the company is in decline, then you have to start thinking about the employees of that company, the survival of that company, maybe taking away a landing strip for that company. Who's going to buy it now? It's too expensive for most people to buy. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, what is Facebook going to buy it and start making chips or something like who's going to buy this thing? Uh, if not another chip manufacturer or another provider of who's going to use these chips in some way to get an advantage. So like if Peloton, Peloton's small enough that an acquisition is tiny as a fraction of, you know, Amazon's capital or Apple's capital or Apple's market cap. And it's not like they're going to own all fitness equipment. So it's a little bit easier to get through, but yeah, this is going to be a challenging one and it could be painful for the company if they can't find a suitor. Yep. Um, Well, we, on that note, are going to get to my quick interview with Craig Zingerlein, Ah, someone who has yet to even suffer through, has yet to even imagine having issues that are, (laughs) that come up when you get acquired, you know, by SoftBank for $32 billion. Craig Zingerlein from Growth University is a member. We're doing these quick interviews, just so you are aware. You'll hear, I think, one a week for the next five weeks, five weeks, five Five weeks. weeks, maybe, yeah. 
um, quick interviews with people who are currently in our accelerator cohort, which is cohort number 24. Mm. Craig founded Growth University and is a three-time accelerator yeah. vet. Yeah. And he went just, with uh, Red Tricycle and then mm -hmm. with his marketing company and now with Growth University. Votion was his company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is still going. That is very so. cool. Yeah, he's trying to he is trying Super to smart. much like he, we're very aligned. He's trying to grow the entrepreneur universe and help more businesses succeed. More shots on goal. For yeah. all of and, steps. you know, if you look at what trips up most startups, uh, you know, after they get product market fit and they've got a product that people um, actually get some value from what separates companies at that point, there's another starting line, which is how good are you at growth, your go to market strategy, acquiring new customers, and, and, and those techniques. And that's what he's focusing on is teaching people how to learn how to grow their startup. So I'm really excited to hear your interview. Molly. Yeah, here he is Craig Zingerlein. It's time for another our crowd deal of the week right now you can join our crowds investment in future family. According to the deal memo, Future Family provides millions of families with access to affordable treatment through Buy Now, Pay Later, Financing, or BNPL. And they power 15% of the fertility clinics in the U.S. Last year, they grew patients served by 300%, according to the deal memo. And now you can invest in Future Family at rcrowd.com slash twist. All around the world, companies like Future Family are innovating and driving returns for investors, and rcrowd analyzes many of these companies. Then they select the ones with the greatest growth potential, and they bring them to you. From personalized medicine to health tech, which is tackling the $60 billion global IVF and fertility treatment market. In state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, our crowd identifies innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest, and that's early. So here's your call to action. If you're an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist and review the current deals. That's OURCROWD.com slash twist. So our launch accelerator recently started its 24th cohort, and I'm going to sit down with some of the founders once a week and dig quickly into their business. It's going to feel quick to you, about 10 or 15 minutes, probably not to them because we're making them give a whole series of two-minute pitches uh, with some regularity. We're starting, though, uh, with Craig Zingerlein of Growth University, who is a three-time launch accelerator visitor with three separate companies. In fact, uh, Craig goes all the way back to accelerator cohort number one, but he's now in cohort number 24 with Growth University. Let me start here. Seems like our accelerator totally works. <laughs> Your accelerator is awesome. Um, yeah. You keep coming back. Oh, I keep coming back. I, I will continue to keep coming back as long as I'm invited. Uh, but no, it's fantastic. We're in week, I believe, seven now of the 24th cohort. Um, and I've seen the evolution of the of the platform just grow over the last few years and was lucky enough to be in the first first and third cohorts. And it's just, it's amazing how, um, how helpful the accelerator is to the startups coming in. It's like an unfair advantage. Awesome. Well, we're not here to brag about our accelerator that much. Let's um, brag about your company. Tell us what you're doing with Growth University. Yeah. So um, we have honed in on the fact that most startups fail and trying to unpack, uh, first of all, why do so many startups fail? And where are their pain points along the startup journey? What's preventing them from growing? And what we've built is a platform that allows us to go really deep with founders in terms of understanding what's working and what's not working from a metric standpoint and providing training programs and mentorship to help bridge the gap for founders who maybe don't have a full-blown marketing team yet. Or if you've got a marketing team to allow us to get in and start to unpack what's happening with your metrics so that ultimately you grow. 
And so you break this approach, right, with founders into five components. We could mm. maybe call them OKRs or mm. something along those lines. Yeah, Tell us about uh, those five sort of key factors to success. Yeah. So I had done a ton of customer discovery before starting this. And what I, what I learned over those, those calls and engagements was that Number one, many startups and founders don't understand what metrics they're actually going for. So we call this kind of metric and goal setting. Number two, once they understand what metrics are actually important for their business, they don't really yet know how to do customer acquisition. Even at some level of scale, they may not have a diversified channel view on how to do that. Number three, uh, they often will struggle with kind of how to what we call activate users or kind of move them through that buyer journey so that they become customers. Number four is once they get people in the door, can you retain them? Can you keep them around? And number five, how do you increase the velocity of your learning as a startup? I think as a founder, that speed to learning is really critical. We do that through experimentation. So those are kind of the five buckets. How does this play out in practice? How does this sort of manual approach um, turn into a business? Yeah. So we had started my original program that I put out there was uh, it, it was a six week, just super di- deep dive into growth. So I would spend basically a week on each of those five topics. And there was actually a sixth one that kind of lives in between acquisition and activation. And so the way that I turned this into a business was that I built content that was kind of startup stage and type agnostic. And what I thought was applicable to founders who were truly trying to learn the components of each of those five areas. And I, and I built a long form series of content for that, that originally was developed through a weekly live cohort style teaching, and then eventually morphed into both that and an on-demand set of playbooks. And then we kind of uh, grew from there. So each of those five pillars now, or those five components have sub programs within them for Mm -hmm. founders to go deeper into. Okay. And then how do you make money? We're a subscription business. So we charge on a membership model. So our founders come in and based on what their needs are, they can get access to our on-demand programs for right now, it's $149 a month. And then if they... uh, if they want a higher level of access with a little bit of that mentorship that I was talking about before with our team, where we can help you really get into the weeds with some of the metrics that you may want to influence, then those plans are, are a lot more expensive and it kind of goes up from there. And behind the scenes, what we've been doing is we've been building an underlying platform because what we also found was that there was no standardization uh, from startup to startup to startup. We see dozens and dozens of startups and they're all using different tools and different ways to track their metrics. So we've standardized that whole process. So we've got a set of spreadsheets right now, but we're building the product version of that for the for the future for them to use. And then tell us, uh, give us some of your key metrics. You are post-revenue. You're making post-revenue. money, right? Yeah. So we, we will cross 20,000 in monthly recurring revenue in February. We have been growing about 25% month over month. We started the subscription business in January of 2021. And so I had run a couple, uh, just one-off courses before that. But when we got through those, we realized that this is a sub- subscription model. Founders wanted more context. They wanted more info. So I kept building more programs. Uh, we've had really incredible retention so far. But yeah, we're mostly monetizing on the membership side. And that's been going really well. How did you... You'd sort of mentioned in passing that you were doing a lot of founder mentorship. I wonder how you got into that and then what, you know prompted you to want to start, you know, a full-on curriculum and educational yeah. program here. So I was an operator in in a number of different startups, including two that had gone through the launch accelerator and a ho- whole bunch of others. And these were any anything from a bootstrapped startup where cash is kind of really constrained to 
uh, you know, I ran millions of dollars in, in marketing budget per month at, at another startup. And as an operator, I saw that the same themes were holding up pretty much at every company that I had been at in terms of inflection points where the business starts to kind of lose momentum. Um, and so what do you do in those situations? You have to kind of, you know, if, if you don't have a process, you're going to reinvent the wheel. So that was my first exposure to to the problem. And then what I started to do was I realized that I just needed to have a lot more context than just my own experience working within companies. And so I actually joined a platform called Growth Mentor. And I did about 200 free calls, 15-minute calls, 30-minute calls from 2017 through now. I still do these. Mm. Where I just get on with a founder and, and they they literally just tell me all their pain points with their startup. And I was able to quantify all of those pain points into, I mean, I take notes on these calls. I started to see the same themes. And that was when I realized, okay, well, there's, there's something here. And, and, and in fact, I've always been super passionate about helping startups, but I wanted to go out on my own again and run a business that had scale potential. And I thought this could be the model. Um, and that's what we've been digging into. Wow. That's, I mean, I would imagine that you would meet plenty of people in the world who are like, I don't care if 80 to 90% of startups fail as long as mine wins. That's right. And so it seems very admirable that what you really want is for everybody to win here. Yeah. What I mean, the aspirational vision or goal is that if we can just decrease the percentage of startups that fail globally, even by a fraction of 1% a year, there will be hundreds of thousands of additional startups that succeed. So if we can be part of that mission with them, then we will also win. And talk about the net good of that, where we get a good economy. There are jobs available Absolutely. to lots of people. Yeah. I mean, the startup sector employs so many people, and even the periphery around it employs so many people. And the services, we don't want to talk about that a lot of obviously like high growth startups and the word service kind of don't mix. However, the service industries that are attached and adjacent to these startups is a, is a major part of the ecosystem economically, globally, actually. So we want more entrepreneurs taking on risk. We want more entrepreneurs to do it. But they also need a playbook. And that's what we're trying to provide. All right. Last question. We're going to ask all of our accelerator cohorts the same question. I know you've been asked this question throughout our program and will continue to be. What is your path to $100 million? So we have a plan to go both enterprise as well as deeper within startups. So we're going to sell multiple seat options. Uh, and we're also selling access to the platform as we go along with an additional line of uh, productized service model. and. If you look at our customer lifetime value right now, it's at about $5,000 actually for the latest uh, cohort of users that we brought in uh, in January. And we think we can double that. So we get to 10,000 LTV, uh, you know, 10,000 plus uh, regular users. And, and that's our pathway. Craig Zingerlang is a three-time launch founder and founder of Growth University. Thanks so much. Good luck. Thank you so much, Molly. That was fun. 